Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can sing about your faithfulness and your saving work through Jesus Christ. Thank you that your Spirit brings to our understanding the glorious gospel about Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd help us to embrace that gospel every day, that we would remind ourselves of your saving work every day, and that our standing with you is, is a good and right standing every day because of Christ. Help us this morning to understand your word, to humble ourselves before you and your word, and to respond to you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Who would bet $1.1 million? Who has $1.1 million? If you do, can I borrow some of it or have it or something? But who would bet $1.1 million? You would have to be absolutely convinced you were going to win, right? Like You'd have to know. This, this money is coming back. On February 3rd, Someone bet $1.1 million that the Atlanta Falcons would either beat the Patriots or lose by only two or less. That's a big risk. They probably felt pretty good most of the way through that game. <laughs> and then not so well as it got toward the waning moments. Didn't work out well for that person. Unfortunately, there are things that people put at risk that are far more valuable than money. On what will you stake your eternal destiny? On what will you stake your eternal destiny? God has given the world a written record that enables us to know Him. God has given us what we would call a self-revelation. He's revealed Himself in the Bible. In the Bible, we learn of God's creative acts, including the act of creating man in his own image. We also learn in the Bible of man's rebellion. We also learn of man's continual pursuit of life contrary to God's revealed design. And we learn of God's faithfulness to complete what he began to redeem a people for Himself. We see God governing over His creation. And we see Him governing to bring about at just the right time in history a manifestation of Himself when He sent His, sent his very own Son, Jesus Christ, Himself God, but veiled in frail humanity. We see this... In the Scriptures, we recognize that the Bible reveals that it was Jesus who was faithful and obedient where you and I, time and again, reveal our lack of faithfulness and our disobedience. Jesus in His faithfulness then laid down His life as a sacrifice for our sin. And as a sin offering, Jesus, who had never sinned, became sin for us. God judged Him as if He were a sinner 
The Bible declares that Jesus was a new and better form of the mercy seat. Now you remember the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and and the, the priest once a year would enter into that Holy of Holies not without blood and he would sprinkle the blood of the offering onto that mercy seat and God would be appeased. Jesus is a new and better form of that because he only only had to be done once. Jesus is the absolute end of God's wrath against the sin of his people. He became the wrath-removing sacrifice for those who trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. This is what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God is redeeming a people for himself and that he will make all things new. All the ways in which men and women have corrupted God's creation, it'll all be eliminated. And the world will be exactly, exactly as God designed it to be. Many do not believe this. Many do not believe what the Bible records about God, about His Son, about us and our plight, our condemnation, God's rescuing nature. The question we all must answer is on what do we stake our eternity? In this section of 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that he has a secure message authored by God, a sure message authored by God that depicts the salvation of our soul. In three commands, now there are other commands, but they they really combine into three main commands, Paul brings forth instruction to Timothy in a world that is demonstrating its rebellion against God. He gives three commands. We'll look at one of them this morning and two this afternoon. The first is to continue to hold on to the written word. That will be our discussion this morning. And this afternoon we'll pick up in chapter 4. He tells Timothy to communicate the written word. And then he tells him to do this, complete this task, filled with the Spirit. Now the context of 2 Timothy, we we looked at this last week in verses 1-9. through The world without the Gospel has arrived at times of difficulty or perilous times. Without the Gospel, disaster comes. In verses 10-11, and we notice this. Paul testifies to God's faithfulness to rescue him from difficulty. The difficulty that he's in. In verse 12, God's people will continue to experience persecution and difficulty. Look what it says in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God tells us the the ministry is conducted in the face of difficulty. And He says it's not not really going to get better. In verse 13, evil will continue to spread out. It says... In verse 13, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In in the King James Version, it uses the word wax. It will wax worse and worse. And the idea is that of you taking some wax and pounding it, and when that happens, it spreads out. 
it spreads out. That's the concept. Evil is not being condensed and isolated. It's being spread out into every avenue of society. Evil's not getting better. It's getting worse. It's not getting less. It's getting more. In this atmosphere of evil, persecution and difficulty, Paul gives Timothy some ministry directives. Now these ministry directives are not just for the paid professionals. They're not just for the elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers. They're an important part of everyone who is part of the church. And these directives are not just for the first century. They're just as pertinent here in the 21st century as they were in the first century. So the directives are essential to us today as a church. And so the first and only for this morning is that we are to continue to hold on to the written word. Look at verse 14, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is our task this morning. And it's a delightful task. As we study the Scriptures this morning, in light of the fact that we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, don't dismiss that from your consideration this morning. He tells Timothy to continue in what he has learned in verse 14. No new strategies. No hidden secret doctrines. No aha moments. No one else has figured this out before. We're the first church to figure out what what the Bible really says. If you find yourself in a church that thinks they've figured out what the Bible really says and no one else has figured it out, you should leave that church. The Bible is not of any private interpretation. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Don't be deceived. The truth that we see today, the first century saints should have and did understand. There's nothing new under the sun. He says, and what you have firmly believed. I'd say a better translation of that is found in the New American Standard. This is what you have become convinced of. And the reason I say that's a better translation is not because um, I don't like the ESV's translation of it, but the, the, the verb is written in an aorist passive, meaning this has already taken place and it's been received. So it's not something he's activated on, it's something he has been convinced of. Does that make sense? So he, what he's saying, continue in what you've received, what you know, what you've been taught, because you've, you've already become convinced of this because you've received this revelation. What is the source of this firm belief? Where did he hear it from? Well, he heard it from Paul, right? We already saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, I think David was the one who was teaching at that time, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what you've received from me, he's received from Paul. Where did Paul get that information? Jesus. 
Okay, so we have this information that comes from God through people, through Paul, through, through uh, Jesus. And then we also have, we know, that Timothy received some of this information from his mother. You can either call her Eunice or Eunice, depending on how you like to pronounce that. And then he also received it from his grandmother, Lois. So Lois and Eunice taught him the sacred scriptures from an early stage. So he learned from reliable sources. Paul, the the great um, missionary, the one through whom God revealed at least 13 of our New Testament books. And through his mother and grandmother, as they pointed him not to tradition, not to churchianity, not to religiosity, pointed them to the sacred scriptures, which is our responsibility, folks. You want to tell someone the gospel, make sure you're pointing to the actual scriptures, not some teaching you heard somewhere sometime. That might be great and helpful, might be right and true, might have been really a great thing for you, but if you're going to point someone to the gospel, make sure you're doing it to the gospel according to the scriptures. That is the source of truth. What was he to hold on to? In verse 15, it was the sacred scriptures or the sacred writings. Look what it says in verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That word sacred means consecrated by or consecrated to God. Why should he hold these writings? First of all, because they're from God. They're consecrated. They're sacred writings. But in verse 16 it says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The word there is theos, nustas, wind or breath of God. It's breathed out by God. The, the, the word scriptures there is the Greek word graphe. It's the written word. All written words that came from God were breathed out by God. Well, what does that mean? What, was, he, was he in the pen? No. Was he in the penman? Yes. The way it's communicated in 2 Peter is that it has the idea that God carries them along. The word in the Greek is pharaoh. He carried them along. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. The concept of that is, is an instrument that is completely at the discretion of something else. A great illustration is when you throw a stick into a running river. The stick doesn't control itself. What's what's happening? The the currents of the water are carrying that stick. And so the written words, though carried out by men, were actually carried forth through the Holy Spirit Himself. All Scripture is given by God. So why should He hold to them? Because they're from God. Why else should He hold on to them? Because they're powerful. Look what it says again in verse 15. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able... The word there is dunamai, dynamite, powerful, which are able. They have the ability. They can take something and make it something else. They, it can make something that's, that's solid and blow it up. Able. They're able to do what? What is it able to accomplish? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures are powerful to bring salvation The question is, how? Is hearing the Scripture enough to bring salvation? 
Is memorizing the Scripture enough to bring salvation? Is mimicking the Scriptures enough to bring salvation? The answer to all three of those is emphatically no. No. There's something that must be united together with that truth that is revealed in the Scriptures, and that is faith. Take a look with me at a a passage in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. What brings forth salvation? Well, the Bible says they're able, the Scriptures are able to bring forth salvation, to make you wise unto salvation, and then it completes the statement, through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's not just knowledge, and it's not even just knowing Jesus. It's not even just speaking forth the words that Jesus saved me, that Jesus died on the cross, and that I believe it. There's more. It's actual, true, abiding faith. God taking what He's revealed in the Scriptures and staking it to your soul. It's like stapling there. This cannot be removed. You have absolute and utter confidence that it is through Christ and through Christ alone that you have life. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, you're there, I I trust, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is that name? Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There's no salvation anywhere else but in Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 16 for just a second. The Scriptures are powerful to bring about the wisdom that's necessary for salvation and the actual completion of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 30. It says, Then He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And here's Paul and Silas, the message. Ready? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He didn't leave it there. He said, you and your household. Dads, just because you believe doesn't mean your kids also believed. What he's saying is, you can be saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your kids can be saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moms, it's not because you believe, it's not because you proclaim it, and it's not even because you live it. You can't save your kids. I want to save them. I'd love to I'd do anything I could. Can't. They must believe in Christ alone. Same for you, same for me, same for my kids, same for our neighbors, same for our co workers. The scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's by grace, through faith in Christ. Always this way, folks. It's always this way. No special anointing. No special message in the sky. I didn't meet Jesus on a paper towel somewhere. I wasn't looking in the sky and I saw this this beautiful thing and it was God speaking to me. What does God's Word say? And what does God's Word point me to? Jesus. 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 The Scriptures are powerful. They can bring us unto salvation. You know what they can also do? Bring us into spiritual growth. Take a look at Acts chapter 20. 
Acts chapter 20. And verse 32, Paul's leaving the church at Ephesus. His farewell sermon was probably a lot longer than we have recorded here. But here's one of the things he said. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, which is able to build you up. There's a spiritual growth that comes out of knowing the Scriptures. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We must know the Scriptures. This is not just for a select group of people to know the Scriptures. This isn't for the seminarians, the theologians, the scholars, the commentators, the Sunday school teachers, the deacons, the elders, the pastors. This is not just for them. Every believer in Jesus Christ is saved and equipped the exact same way. It's wonderful to read books. It's wonderful to go to seminary. It's wonderful to learn. It's great to go to Bible studies. What we need, folks, is the Scriptures. And every one of us is accountable to know the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are powerful to bring you unto salvation and to bring you to spiritual growth. See what it, uh, what it says here in 2 Corinthians 3. Begin looking at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we're looking, the context of this is we're looking constantly into the new covenant. We're looking at what God has done through Jesus Christ. And the salvation that's offered to us. And the more we dig into the truth of God's Word, the more we know what God has done, the more we recognize how great Christ is. And you know what also becomes equally apparent? When we know how great God is and how great Christ is, you know what we also, at the same time, there's this, there's this opposite effect. Jesus is getting brighter in our view, more beautiful in our view, greater in our view. At the same time, something is inversely going downward. What is that? Me. Me. Ah, I can't believe. I can't believe that I would do that and think that way and speak that way. The, the more I see Christ, the, the more he starts to reveal in me this ugliness of who I am. You, you want to grow in Christ? Don't study you. You'll just be depressed and run. You want to grow in Christ? Study him. He'll become great. You'll see how rotten you are. And you won't be happy about it. So you'll confess your sin. And you'll cling to Christ. And you'll be moving from one degree of glory to another. What is this moving from one degree of glory to another? Am I becoming a better human? Not really. I recognize that what I have to bring to the table stinks. And so I'll say, God, I need to die to this because this thing I'm offering is no good. And so I'll learn to yield myself to Christ and Christ will be demonstrating Himself in my life more and more frequently. And so there is this apparent growth. Head back with me, please, to the book of 2 Timothy. We want, we want to grow. Paul is telling us that we can grow as we hold on to the written Word. Because the Word of God comes from God Himself. It's powerful to bring us unto salvation and it matures our thinking and it matures our understanding and it helps us to understand our des desperate need for surrender 
And so there's a spiritual progress that's taking place. And now he comes to this last part of this chapter, and he tells us that the Scriptures are profitable. Profitable. Take a look at verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're going to study here for just a few minutes. Profitable. We'll tolerate quite a bit for something that's profitable. This is how people get sucked into get-rich-quick schemes. I remember as a college student, I was coming home trying to find a job, and there was this advertisement. All right, great. You can go and sell these knives. Raise your hand if you ever got sucked into that one. Come on. Be proud. Be bold. I was sucked in. I would sell knives. I'm going to make a million bucks selling knives. Maybe you didn't think you were going to be a millionaire selling knives, but you thought this is going to work out. And after a little while, you start to see something's not right. I think when we get a job that is actually going to pay. (laughs) But we tolerate certain things because we think it'll work out. You see someone in a fancy car, in fancy clothes. These people are at the top of the pyramid scheme. You listen to the presentation, envision yourselves as one of those top people in the pyramid scheme, and you're hooked. Why? Because you see that there is profit in line for you. Unfortunately, by the time you get hooked in, the ship has sailed on the first tier of people. Okay, So the wealthy people are already there. You're just going to add to their wealth, and you're still going to be a peon. I'm sorry that I just foiled all of your plans. Why would someone go down this road? They see. They have a mind. This is going to work out. This is going to be profitable. On the other hand, listen carefully, the profitability of God's Word is not for a select few who get in on the ground floor. Did you hear that? The profitability of the Bible does not have an exhaustible source. Who's that source? God. He's not exhaustible. And therefore, the benefits never run dry. Can I repeat that? The profitability of the Bible does not have an exhaustible source, and therefore, the benefits never run dry. God is making you and I. He's making a statement. It's not in the form of a promise, but it may as well be, because God is making a statement of fact, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Anything God says, you can take it to the bank. It's true. And He tells you that the Word of God is profitable. Well, what's it profitable for? What are the benefits? First of all, proper teaching, doctrine. The Bible tells us about God. It tells us about God's Trinitarian nature. That God the Father has sovereignly planned our salvation. It talks about God the Son. God the Son fully and perfectly completed this sovereign plan of the Father in that He laid down His life as a sacrifice for my sin and was raised gloriously and victoriously over my sin to purchase me. And the Spirit of God is the one who brings us to understand this and actually gives life to a dead person. The Spirit. God tells us about Himself in the Bible. The Bible tells us about man in the Bible. God tells us about man in the Bible. About our sin. About our brokenness. About our rebellion. And about our nature. 
And also, he tells us that we were made, crafted, in his image. The Bible unfolds a story whereby that image of God is restored in man so that we properly and fully reflect him one day. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you look at yourself, you think, okay, uh, I'm, I'm an image of God, and I'm, I'm, I don't feel like I always reflect it very well. If you think you reflect it very well all the time, you and I have to have a different conversation. But if you're like the rest of us, and you think, man, I don't really reflect God's image very well all the time, and you're, you're a little broken about that, as, as you should be, which brings you to repentance and brings you to surrender. And, and you know, what does that result in? God's Spirit working in us, God's Spirit filling us, God's Spirit controlling us, and a restored image of God. You who go through this process on and off, I have good news for you. Someday it's going to be finished. Someday it's going to be finished. God's image will be fully, permanently restored in you, and you'll reflect Him forever. This is good news. This is happy. The Bible tells us about this process. The Bible tells us about salvation, God's remedy for our sin, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and God's provision of righteousness through Christ. The Bible tells us about heaven. That's the destiny of those who have been savingly impacted by Jesus. And the Bible tells us about hell. That's the destiny of those who reject God's saving work. So the Bible is profitable for teaching. We, we know what God says. So I need to get in it, right? I need to read it. I need to study it. I need to understand it. I need to know it. I need to hear from it. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And much of that is in the form of this written revelation that he's telling us to hold on to. It's also profitable for pervasive rebuke. Persuasive, sorry. Pervasive, nice word. Uh, good, good word, but not the one I was intending to say. Persuasive rebuke. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. One of the uses of the commands of Scripture is to point out our sinfulness. Now listen to this, okay? I need you to hear this. There, it can be easy to look at the commands and allow them to do this job of pointing out our sinfulness, and then we, we leave it there, either dejected and depressed, or we say, but God is so forgiving, and we move on. That's not the goal of the commands, is to either leave us depressed or ignore them. Those are not the solutions. The commands wound us, right? You feel wounded by the commands. You're not depressed by the commands, and they're not grievous to you, right? That's not what we're saying. But the commands wound you because you see how you fail. And the gospel soothes our wounds when we find salvation through Christ. Even as a believer, when the, when the law wounds us, when we see our failures, we, what do we do about this? Well, we turn back to the one who fulfilled the law and we say, God, thank you for the grace that I have through Christ. Thank you that though my sinfulness is not what you want from me, you still have accepted me in the beloved. So the gospel restores 
The commands have this faithful ministry to us after our salvation. We are not made perfect in this life by our salvation. Did you know that? You're not going to get to this point of sinless perfection in this life. Not happening. The commands reveal our sin. We repent and we're restored. We seek God's empowerment through His Spirit. This is the process. Without the commandments, I would not see my sin. Paul tells us that in Romans 7, 7. Listen to what he says. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So the Bible is profitable for teaching and for rebuke. Okay, there's something wrong. There's a problem here. So the Bible brings that to my attention. And then it says it's profitable for correction. So powerful correction. The word brings restoration to our spirit. Take a look with me at a couple of passages in the Psalms. We're going to come right back here, so hold your hand here. But look at Psalm 19 just for a second. God's word has this powerful impact of restoration or correction. So we we learn what is proper. We learn doctrine from the Scriptures. Then we learn what's wrong. We are reproved by the Scriptures. And then we're given this this corrective or this restoration. How? By the Scriptures. The, The Bible gives us this information. Look at what it says in Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word reviving has this word of returning, returning the soul. It's used, the same word is used in Psalm 23. He restores my soul. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul's testimony about how he had experienced so much difficulty and how it was so hard, and, and yet he said, I do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So the question is, how is our soul being renewed? Well, that is what Paul is telling us here in 2 Timothy 3.16 for correction. He's restoring our soul. How are we restored? By the Spirit applying the truthfulness of the Word to our lives. What does the Bible teach me? What does the Bible teach me about God's love and provision through Jesus Christ? That He'll never, no never, Forsake me. He'll never forsake me. This is the good news that we see in the Scriptures. It corrects us. So it's restoring our soul to something. He says now in verse 16, the final phrase of verse 16, and for training in righteousness. Productive training. What does training mean? What does he mean by training? Well, the word is used in the book of Hebrews to refer to child training. And I think it really, I I think we get this very vivid illustration that comes from that. You teach your children all manner of things, and it's a long process. So you start off with your children, and you say, be nice to your sister. Generic, right? That's the truth. Be nice to your sister. As things work their way out, your child does something. And so you start to expound upon what it means to be nice to his sister. So your your son 
pulls on your daughter's pigtails. And you say, don't pull on your sister's pigtails. That's not nice. Okay. Don't stick your tongue out at your sister. That's not nice. Don't throw the toy car at your sister. That's not nice. Don't hide her snack. That's not nice. You go over this, this whole process goes on and on and on. And then the positive things. Share your toy. That's nice. Uh, share your snack. That's nice. Help her with her room. That's nice. Play nicely. That's nice. All these things. Over the course of time, they learn what are the accepted norms. You've trained them. Correct? Here's the question, folks. Does this teaching make your children do what's right? Does that teaching make them obey? Just because you taught your child what is not nice and what is nice, does that make them be nice? No. They're just trained. You've taught them right and wrong. Just as we instruct our children, the Bible describes what God's standard of righteousness looks like. Does this knowledge produce righteousness? Absolutely not. The better you know what God says in the Bible, the more likely you are to recognize when your attitude, speech, and behavior is wrong. This leads to conviction, which leads to a proper sense of guilt. And godly sorrow produces repentance, followed by restoration to a proper relationship with God through the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. We need to be trained in righteousness. We do not uh, know what righteousness is without a revelation from God. And so God has given us this profitable instruction. He's given us doctrine so we know about Him and about salvation, about ourselves, about His plans. This is all good doctrine. And uh, reproof. Eh, There's something wrong here. Correction. How to be restored. Yes. And then training in righteousness so I know what the expected norms are. This is what a a Christ-like life looks like. That knowledge doesn't make me Christ-like, but it helps me to identify when I'm not Christ-like so I can be right with Him. And guess what's going to happen in my life? I will demonstrate Christ when His Spirit's controlling me. This is all leading to something. A particular goal. Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word complete means able to meet every demand. Able to meet every demand. And then, it's interesting, he uses a related word, equipped for every good work. It means, in the, in the King James, throughly, throughly furnished which means through and through, or in a thorough manner. So he basically says, the Word of God is so profitable that it teaches us and it reproves us and it corrects us and it trains us in righteousness so that we will reach this this ability to meet all the demands that God has, having been completely ready, completed to this place. It has the idea of having been redone and fully furnished. So I was thinking about extreme makeover home edition. You've got this house. It's got some, some, some problems. The family doesn't fit in it or whatever the case may be. Or it's not well finished. And, and you are the lucky winner of whatever that TV network's thing was. I think it was ABC. Extreme makeover. And Ty Pennington comes in and all the girls are like, Oh my goodness, how cute he is. And I thought that beautiful hair. 
it's great. And he comes in, and the crew, and they redo the whole house, and it's, it's bigger, and it's, and it's better equipped, and then they put all the modern conveniences in it, and the, and the TVs that Sears provides, and all this stuff. So the whole thing is, is just banged out. It's beautiful. It was like this, now it's like this. Fully furnished. Well, if you look at what the Scriptures are doing, they're taking us from meh, and wants to make us like this. Fully furnished. Ready to do anything God wants from us. The Scriptures are profitable. They, they make us what God wants us to be with surrender of the will to Him. This is, this is the, the glory of, of why we should hold on to the Scriptures. This is what the Bible is doing in us. Continue to hold on to the Bible. It's from God. Continue to hold on to the Bible. Through faith in Christ, it brings salvation. Continue to hold on to the Bible. It's, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, re- correction, guidance, and righteousness. It fully prepares us for a life of godliness. The knowledge of it doesn't do it. Surrender to it, and the Spirit does. This comes through surrender. There are so many objects that cry out for our affection so many distractions. Why should I desire to grasp onto the Bible above all of them? Let me just remind you of two back-to-back parables that Jesus tells. They'll be on the screen behind me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. When you come to understand what God is, what God has done through Christ, there is nothing that you possess that compares to that. There's nothing. Distraction, competing interests, where do you find this pearl in the Scriptures? We learn there's only one way to have an eternity with God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the message you'll find in the Bible over and over again. Don't be short-sighted. Stake everything you are and everything you have on Christ. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to trust you. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, your supper, this table that you've invited us to, I ask that you'd help us to do so in proper understanding of your goodness to us, that you would be glorified in your church built. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.